Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Raymond Clemens, curator of early books and manuscripts at the Yale University Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, and Joseph Calamia, senior editor at Yale University Press, to talk about the world's most mysterious manuscript, the Voynich Manuscript. Its language is unknown, its purpose is unknown, and its origins are unknown. So, guys, what do we know about the Voynich Manuscript? Well, uh, we do know that it's from the 15th century, uh, and we know that from the carbon dating of the parchment. So um, unless you believe that the parchment sat around for two or 300 years, um, it's pretty likely from the 15th century. We've done analysis of the various pigments and the inks. Um, All of those are definitely medieval. Um, They're definitely the sorts of inks and pigments that that were used in that period. Um, We can't date pigments, unfortunately, so we we don't have a way of doing that yet. But um, everything about the book in terms of its construction uh, definitely aligns with the 15th century, probably the early 15th century. So, So that we know. Um, We know of it in the 17th century uh, when it shows up again uh, in correspondence Um, and then again in the early part of the 20th century when uh, the bookseller uh, Voynich purchases it uh, and brings it to the U.S. And how did the Voynich come to the Beinecke? Um, It was a gift uh, of H.P. Krauss, uh, the New York bookseller. Um, He had acquired it from... uh, After uh, Voynich died, it passed on to his uh, widow. Uh, His widow then passed it on to a mutual acquaintance who had worked for both uh, both of the Voyniches. And then uh, H.P. Krauss hired uh, that woman uh, in his firm uh, and uh, gave her a certain amount of money for the manuscript. Um, He was unable to sell it, and he donated it to Yale uh, in 1969. And do we have any idea um, why there was this fascination then. Is it the? I mean, is it the same now that people didn't know what it was, and it was just this these conspiracy theories around it? Um, like, what made it something that somebody would want to acquire? I think uh, certainly in the 20th century there was um, this idea that the code itself could be cracked, that it was in fact a cipher manuscript, um, and. This titillated people's interests. They thought that uh, it it may not give you new information necessarily, but it would be a wonderful thing to be able to crack. Some of the first people that did try to figure out what the Voynich said uh, thought that it gave uh, information about the Middle Ages that we didn't have before. Um, So, for example, they thought that the telescope and the microscope were actually in use in the 13th century rather than uh, later. Um, this turned out to be entirely erroneous. But so uh, I think they were looking for possibly new knowledge about the Middle Ages, but they certainly weren't looking for um, anything uh, covert or uh, interesting in the way uh, that we might suspect today. Um, and so the first thing you see in this version of the book, the, the one from the press, uh, is a letter from Voynich. Uh, that says he doesn't want the manuscript opened until after his death, and then in in that case, only by a very specific person or somebody that is you know not up to any good, uh, who's not up to no good, I guess. <laughs> um, why is that? What was that note for? What's the reason for such a cryptic note? Um, I, I love the note, and it was actually Joe's idea to include that as the opening, so that the first thing he saw when he opened it was this very enigmatic uh, letter. <laughs> Um, and, and I thought that was brilliant. Uh, the letter itself is a little bit less um, 
uh, fascinating. What it contained was um, very specific information about who uh, Voynich had purchased the manuscript from in Italy. Um, uh -huh. And so what they were doing was establishing that the manuscript was not stolen. Uh, and that's why that information was was important, um, was that they were trying to, to make sure that people hadn't thought that it had been stolen. It wasn't really anything about the decipherment of the manuscript. I'm sure that that adds a, an air t of uh, <laughs> conspiracy to it, though, right? And it's actually from, from Ethel Voynich, uh, uh -huh. the letter. that is, is. So it's actually from Voynich's wife. Uh, so after the manuscript passed to her, this was put for safekeeping in case something happened to her. She wanted to relate the story as far as she knew it, um, which the essays in the book show that she was right about some things and not about others. Um, <laughs> but that adds to the mystery, I think. So uh, Wilfred Voynich passes away, and then the book goes to her, and then she writes this letter, and then eventually she passes away, and then right, it goes right. through so, hands, changes hands. So the envelope um, says that the person that's mentioned on the envelope is A.M. Nil, which is the associate that, that Ray mentioned in, in terms of, you know, she worked with Wilfred Voynich and um, um, Ethel. Right, Voynich she was sort of Ethel's... Uh, companion mm -hmm. uh, for, I think, 30 years. It was a, quite a long period between uh, Wilford's death and Ethel's death. And then she went to work for Krauss, and Krauss wrote a book about uh, his own life, and um, he praised her, a whole paragraph about how wonderful this woman was, that she was meek and that she kept, every time he would explode, she would calm him down. And um, <laughs> she seems to have been quite an interesting individual about which we know absolutely nothing other than you know these few documents. So... I guess I'll ask each of you this. Maybe you'll have different answers. But what do you, Joe, starting with you, what do you think it is uh, about the Voynich that fascinates people so much? Um, I think that it's, it's a, the mystery, of, of course, is, is, is something that, that attracts people. I think that the images, although maybe not traditionally beautiful, um, they're intriguing. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, people who've, who've now read the book and, and will talk to me about it. Um, they're, they each have their own favorite pictures in it, depictions. <laughs> right. There's a person who looks like she just ate too many cookies. There's <laughs> some people have referred to various animals in it as Pokemon. You know, there are, there, everybody has their kind of favorite page of, of it. Um, but beyond that, uh, the fact that it's just attracted so many brilliant minds to attempt to decipher it and who have failed to do that, I think that that makes people interested in it to see whether they could do, do something or whether there's anything they could uncover or um, just to, to experience kind of what those people looked at. I think it's an interesting generational shift that when I talk to people and they describe the images, it tends to be along the line of Dr. Seuss. Uh, <laughs> so you have Pokemon, I have Dr. Seuss. I think that's an interesting uh, gauge uh, as to our various audiences. Um, and there's actually some there that look distinctly like pasta uh, to me. So there's, there are certain ones that look like ziti for some reason uh, in the manuscript itself. Um, and, and I agree with Joe. Uh, I just wanted to add that um, there's also something as we become sort of more and more adept with computers and security and things like that, the idea of a medieval uh, book that should somehow still, uh, despite all of our advances um, in technology, should still resist um, even the slightest uh, understanding. I mean, there's not a single word in the Voynich manuscript that has been deciphered. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that simply both infuriates and fascinates people <laughs> uh, and brings right. them back to it. So um, I get tremendous numbers of emails uh, giving suggestions uh, as, as to what the solution is. Right. Um, please don't do that. Uh, 
you know, all sorts of interesting um, ideas. But again, uh, it's it's an age where where we think we've got everything, and here's this thing that sort of pokes in our eye and says, "No, you don't really quite understand everything." Uh, so this is a question for each of you as well. Um, my guess is that if this thing ever does get deciphered, it's probably going to be pretty mundane. But do you have a favorite uh, theory that you've heard over the years or a conspiracy theory uh, or a, the strangest thing you've ever heard? Uh, well, I feel like Ray would know more <laughs> Ray, than conspiracy Ray, theories. Ray, I think <laughs> Ray gets a lot of fan mail, so maybe he'll... I, fan mail, is that what we're calling it? <laughs> the, the sort of things that I get actually are, are very interesting. They're They're often from people that are, are quite genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they have had an insight of some sort. Uh, so maybe this is written in a language we haven't considered yet. So I've gotten letters that said, have you considered Latin or Hebrew? Um, and uh, we have. Uh, <laughs> and uh, things like that. So there's a certain percentage that are, you know, are genuinely giving us suggestions. Um, there's another group of individuals that have had some sort of a revelation. Uh, so they've receive some sort of knowledge, they mm-hmm. think, that will help them to decipher it. And that's a little bit more difficult for us to, to sort of uh, evaluate. Um, right. So we, we generally indicate, as we will if anyone else writes in, that we don't collect interpretations, that there's no contest, that just, you know, as a library, what we do is we provide the materials for other people to, to research. But we're not in the business of validating uh, anybody's theories about any of our books, to be honest with you. Uh, so that's that's just not what we do as a library. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite stuff has actually been the fan fiction. Um, and there's this wonderful fan fiction piece that describes the Voynich as a um, a young girl's diary who's an alien. <laughs> and um, she's taking notes about Earth and about the solar system and then accidentally leaves it when her spaceship takes her back <laughs> to whatever planet she's from. And uh, and so this is this is what's left. And and of all of them, to me, that's uh, the most. I think that's a very creative way of <laughs> right. looking at it. And when that one turns out to be true, we'll all feel bad <laughs> that we laughed about it. <laughs> right. Um, so speaking of you know the the library being there to give the public access, what sort of access? Obviously, before this book, um, did the public have to something? I guess is probably highly requested as something like the Voynich manuscript. Um, it is highly requested, uh, but because of the condition of the manuscript, we actually don't usually allow it out. Um, it has a lot of foldouts that make it very complex and that um, are very, very fragile. So it was one of the first manuscripts that we digitized mm-hmm. uh, and put online. And so it's been um, in a rudimentary form uh, for at least 20 years available online. And more recently, we've uh, upgraded the images. Um, so what's available now are very high-quality images so that you can blow up any screen that you'd like. Um, and in fact, the Voynich receives the the vast majority of the traffic mm. that we receive on the Beinecke's website. So a lot of people are interested, and they can just download an entire copy of it um, if they want. Um, and obviously, with this book, you get all those sort of foldouts and things like that. Um, what is it? I mean, is there any theories as to why these fold? It's very unusual, uh, even in today's publishing. So is there any theories as to why the, these foldouts were included? That's a great question. Um, you mentioned that it's fairly rare, so we don't have a, a good context for that. Uh, when we get into print and paper, we it's a world where you do have foldouts, um, certainly much more often. Um, but with parchment um, and with medieval manuscripts, you don't. And there's a number of reasons for these. It, it has to do with the shape of the original material. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually not large enough if you have a fairly big book to be able to do that. 
Um, and in fact, the way the, the author of the Voynich or the binder of the Voynich has put it together, um, it's extremely difficult to uh, replicate. They've taken a huge piece of parchment and sort of uh, bound it in sort of three quarters of the way and then folded both sides. Um, so it's a very it's a very complex thing, and it, and it wasn't normally done. And uh, my only guess is that whatever vision uh, the Voynich author had uh, was that these um, issues of the cosmos, in particular, be large enough for you to see them as a whole, mm -hmm. rather than breaking them up into individual segments. And when I was talking with Joe about you know what could we do uh, as a book that would be interesting, um, he was the one that that really thought we should do these so that you get that sense of uh, the, the folding out of the manuscript. We talked a bit about when we were first thinking about the project, how do we provide context? Because the materials are available online. You can see, you can see, the, you can see the manuscript online, but um, you don't have the context of really knowing what it is. And although the speculation is fun, and I, I think, again, the theories that we just talked about, are there are some really exciting theories and some bizarre theories. Um, having the critical essays with the manuscript provides kind of a foothold for further exploration. Um, there are things that we do know about the manuscript, and so those provide a context. Um, in the same way, when we produced the photographic facsimile, we wanted to have the foldouts that operated like the foldouts in the manuscript um, for you to flip through the pages and have it feel like you're looking through the manuscript because that provides a physical context and an understanding of what the, the document is actually like. And um, since acquiring the the Voynich manuscript, um, what sort of research has been done um, at the Beinecke specifically um, as far as it's concerned? Well, one of the things I, I mentioned earlier is that uh, quite a while ago in the 1980s, they did um, the carbon dating uh, mm -hmm. analysis of it, where it was destructive analysis. They took small segments from several pages uh, and sent that off to a lab and had that done. And they also... Um, took samples of the inks uh, and had them done by a, a group in Chicago. We decided we'd do, uh, redo a lot of the uh, chemical analysis with more modern tools. Um, and so we brought this to uh, Yale University's Institute for the Preservation of Cultural Heritage. Mm -hmm. And they uh, ran several uh, analysis of the various pigments and of the parchment. Um, and what they were able to do was to uh, indicate for us what the uh, pigments were made out of. And what we were hoping was that they would be unusual. Um, and then that might help us to locate where the manuscript was made. Um, unfortunately, it turns out the pigments are very common. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very cheap. They're found uh, all over uh, Europe. And so uh, we now know what they are, uh, but it didn't really give us the sort of information we were hoping for. Um, they were also able to bring out uh, one of the few bits of the book that uh, is in Latin. Um, there's an ex libris from uh, one of the 16th century owners, mm -hmm. and we were able to see that much better by using uh, multispectral imaging uh, on the manuscript itself. So uh, they were able to uh, confirm uh, what tests were done uh, in the 1980s, and uh, you know we got a little bit further in, term in terms of knowing what the materials were. And... Um, for these tests, obviously with the modern, I guess it's probably less taking samples out of it, but for, yeah. for previous in the, maybe the 1980s, how do you sort of balance the preservation with the, the research and, and, and sort of testing for the inks and pigments and things like that? 
Um, that is, I, I think, the central concern of, of any curator uh, when they're looking at a manuscript is that you have to balance what what do we know now uh, with destroying some part of the manuscript, uh, particularly when we know that in 20 or 30 years there are going to be more fantastic tools that we haven't yet thought of. Um, and in this case, it was thought that um, there's a lot of uh, parchment that doesn't necessarily affect the text of the images. Um, it's got fairly large borders. And so uh, what they did was they cut very small strips uh, off of, of some of those pieces. Mm -hmm. um, they documented with photographs where they were taken from. Um, but certainly that was of some concern. Uh, with the pigments, they were able to just scrape off a tiny bit so that you wouldn't see where they were taken from. Um, but I think there was a lot of trepidation about that. And when people ask us why we don't rerun the um, carbon dating, the reason is is that there isn't really a good way to do that that isn't destructive mm -hmm. yet. Yet. And, yeah, I'm sure there's, in 10 years there's going to be something <laughs> phenomenal. <Right. laughs> but at the moment, we can't date it without that. And beyond the carbon dating, right, you mentioned in the book there's a description, too, of actually genetic analysis of the vellum as well because the vellum is made from – from cow skin, um, and there are 14 or 15 cows that were used to create this manuscript. Um, but but you said that that was something that you hoped that they might reveal. Actually, not a cow. Is that the? Yeah, we were hoping it would be a uh, goat, which is more common in Italy, or sheep, which is more common in France. Uh -huh. uh, unfortunately, calf is your lowest <laughs> common denominator right. in terms of European parchments. So we were we were stuck there. Right. Um, so it's definitely calf. They they now have DNA analysis. Um, that isn't destructive, and uh, they can tell us a lot about what the animals are. Uh, eventually, they'll have a data bank, uh, and we'll know much more about where various cattle were uh, in various places, and we might be able to date it much more closely uh, once that database is established, but that is in its infancy. Okay. Um, so we're looking at, you know, 10, 20, 30 years off. We need a 23andMe for cows. Like <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ancestry.com. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the book has waited this long, uh, 20. What's 20 more years? <laughs> exactly. Voynich won't care. Uh, so you'd, you'd earlier mentioned that, um, you know, it's hard to give a widespread access to this book for the public to come in and, and actually look at the physical book because of the condition of it. Um, are there any notable visitors um, that have come to, to look at the the, uh, the manuscript over the years? Uh, certainly my, my favorite visitor uh, while I've been at the Beinecke, which has only been in the last five years, uh, was uh, three years ago we had the li library's anniversary and Umberto Eco uh, came out to give the keynote address. And um, I was he, – he wanted to see – this was the only thing in our library that he wanted to see. Huh. Uh, so I brought it out for him, and uh, he looked at it for about uh, 10 minutes, and uh, then the fascination was over because <laughs> <laughs> you can't read it. Right. Um, but right. uh, certainly he was, uh, I think, the sort of most esteemed medievalist that that's wanted to see it. Um, so um, what are some of the, the technical aspects of the manuscript? You've talked about the ink a little bit and the, and the, the vellum. Um, what about the binding and things like that? Are these also pretty run-of-the-mill run of the, run of the um, techniques, or is there anything unusual there? Um, it certainly isn't its original binding, and mm -hmm. so we've lost whatever the context was mm -hmm. for, for the original work. Um, we believe the binding was redone probably in the 19th century uh, when these materials were uh, brought into the Jesuits' library. Um, and so what it has on it now, it's called a limp vellum binding, mm -hmm. which always makes my kids laugh. Um, but it, it's simply, the again, the lowest common non denominator binding. It's actually wonderful for the book. It protects it beautifully, but there's no information mm -hmm. uh, about provenance that's been stored uh, within that binding. 
And uh, how did the how did this project come about, Joe? For you um, to to reproduce this manuscript in this format? So um, actually, it was uh, I was working on another book for the press. Um, it was a math book where it was based off of a a wonderful Yale course that I wish I had the chance to take when I was an undergraduate, but. Um, they looked at applications of different mathematical concepts and then used those to introduce a variety of different math. So there was a chapter on um, carbon dating, and they used the Voynich manuscript as an example. And so um, I had heard about it, in part because it, it's, it is so much part of a popular culture. I mean, there are novel, young adult novels that mention the Voynich. There is a video game where you have to go and collect pages of the Voynich. Um, so it, it's out there. But um, it was something of a reminder that this this manuscript is here at Yale. And um, so I reached out to Ray. And um, it's always great to pitch an idea when it's an idea that someone else has already had, because the Beinecke had already been thinking about this in kind of their top um, books that they wanted to turn into a publication. And so um, from those early conversations, we uh, discussed what this should look like and what could be provided um, that isn't out there already. And you mentioned this idea that, you know, it's sort of prevalent in in pop culture with a video game looking for pieces. Um, I imagine that there are, there are, this isn't the only um, sort of undecipherable um, manuscript out there. So what, what is it about this one? What, what is it about the Voynich um, do you think that, that makes it sort of this almost pop culture uh, icon in a way? Well, I, I would push back a little bit on the idea that, it's, that there are other, there certainly aren't other medieval manuscripts that are undeciphered. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, alchemical manuscripts that were written in code but they tend to be a fairly easy code uh, to to crack, and and they've they've already been they're mostly uh, substitution uh, codes where you substitute one letter for another, and so mostly those have been cracked. So so it is one of the the few that's uncracked. Um, I think two things really stand out about the Voynich. The first one is is the characters themselves. So uh, this is a horrible term, but we call it Voynichese <laughs> because we don't have another word for it. But um, Unlike other ciphers that are written in Roman characters that we understand, uh, the author of this uh, book chose to wrote in uh, characters that we don't understand, um, that are absolutely unique. And they they certainly look based on Roman characters. They don't look like Hebrew. They don't look like uh, Cyrillic. Um, They definitely look like Roman characters, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not a single letter that corresponds to another letter in the Roman alphabet. And so... This is one of the things that makes decipherment, I think, almost impossible. Um, as a medievalist that reads script, um, it's very hard to know, even when you know a language fairly well, to know which letters uh, belong to which, uh, sorry, which strokes belong to which letters. Um, in medieval writing, especially when you put two letters together, they often join up and leave out some of the strokes. Um, so these are called ligatures. Uh, CT, for example, is often done uh, as a ligature. And so if you don't already know in advance what the letters are, mm-hmm. it's extremely difficult to figure out uh, what the code might have been that put them together. So what most people use when they're um, trying to decipher it is a system of letters that was invented by um, the working group after World War II that looked at the manuscript and broke it up into what they thought were individual characters. Um, the second thing is the illustration. Um, I don't know of another manuscript that has illustration like this. Um, as we mentioned, the first part of it's an herbal, which is, is fairly common, although 
um, none of the plants depicted in the herbal correspond with actual plants, uh, in, in our world at least. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, the zodiolo zodiological sections uh, certainly look like things that we've seen before, um, but then they have an entire section of bathing naked women, mm -hmm. and this doesn't look like anything we've seen. Um, it's not it's not erotic. Um, it doesn't seem to be uh, relating to reproduction. Um, the the basic use for baths in the Middle Ages was for healing, um, but it doesn't it doesn't look like that either. And so we've got women in, in this you know many women in these baths, and no real explanation of of what that might be. And I think that's one of the places where I hope art historians might come in and help us, you know, are there other examples of things like this or is this unique? Mm -hmm. um, and if it's unique, it's pretty impressive. Um, so I guess I would be remiss if I didn't ask, but I have heard a rumor that uh, I, on at least one occasion, somebody has asked to uh, taste the manuscript. Is that correct? Or eat a piece of it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> there, there are people that believe that the manuscript itself has certain powers uh -huh. um, and that if they come in contact with those powers, uh, that it will it'll cause uh, magical healing of one sort or another. Um, and so this, this is, again, one of the reasons that we don't pull it out uh, right. often. Um, so far, to our knowledge, nobody has licked or walked away with any part of the manuscript. <laughs> All right. Well, Ray, Joe, thank you for coming on today. Thank you Thanks. very much. The book is The Voynich Manuscript, and it is available wherever books are sold. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Talk to you next time.